Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. Uh, now, as I speak, uh, as a, I'm sure you've heard, uh, Israel is at war you know, with Hamas, and uh, I don't know about you, but I find international affairs quite interesting, so I've been checking the news a lot, uh, kind of following what's going on. And as I read over Exodus 13 this morning in preparation for this Bible talk, I couldn't help but connect uh, what we're reading here with what's currently going on today. I mean, we're going to be talking about some holidays and some Jewish customs and whatnot. Uh, and again, um, you know, uh, what's going on in Israel today is kind of connected. It's not as if, you know, Pharaoh has risen again from the dead or anything like that. But, um, you know, a lot of the same opposition toward Judaism and toward their religion and whatnot, you know, that's that's as old as uh, Bible times. And I, I think we're still seeing a lot of that. So I'd encourage you to keep the whole situation in Israel in prayer. Obviously, Pray for God's mercy, pray for those who are injured, pray for those who are still held hostage, pray that the response would be just and appropriate, pray for the leaders that are involved, that they'd make wise, good decisions, uh, and also pray that it doesn't escalate into something really, really horrific. I mean, I, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to uh, try and picture how this could turn into something much, much worse. So let's pray together for God's mercy in this entire situation. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Exodus 13. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your living word and for the way that through it you give us life. You use it to renew our minds, to convict us of sin, to make us more and more like your son. We do thank you for your son, King Jesus, and for the way that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises that you made to the nation of Israel. Uh, he is the Jewish Messiah, but also the Savior of the world, and we praise you for the way that one day he will reign over every nation on this planet, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We do pray for this terrible war currently going on in Israel. We do pray for a peaceful resolution to it soon. We pray that you would bless President Netanyahu and others involved with wisdom. We do pray that you would rescue those who are still held hostage, that they be rescued safely and without uh, any further damage or trauma. We pray for those who are injured, that you might heal them. For those who are grieving loved ones, comfort them by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we do pray that the response that Israel um, brings about, that that would be righteous and just, uh, but at the same time merciful. Please work through this. Lord, bless us now as we read your word. Please speak to us. Open our minds and our hearts. Help us to sense what you're saying to us through this passage, and give us as always grace to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now we come today to Exodus 13, which is really kind of an interesting section in Scripture, at least the section we're going to be looking at this morning, because in a way it's sort of a parenthesis. Um, up to this point, uh, it's been sort of fast-moving action. You know, you got Israel in slavery, you got Moses doing all these plagues, you got the death of the firstborn, you got Moses, uh, you know, basically telling Pharaoh, you know, it's time for our people to go, let my people go, all of that. Uh, Pharaoh finally breaks and he lets the people go. But here at the beginning of chapter 13, we've got something that feels almost like uh, an interlude, because in this passage, the Lord's going to talk about Jewish rituals and holidays that uh, don't seem to be a immediately relevant to what's going on, to the immediate circumstances. And that's a reminder of the way in which the book of Exodus is actually written after the fact. It's not written so much to those who are who are like going through the events, because you know the people going through the events know what's going on. It's actually written to those who have come out of Egypt, wandering around the wilderness, trying to make sense of what's going on as they head toward the promised land. And that's why some of these ceremonies and holidays are included here, because they'd be in, they'd be celebrating them, whereas those who are still living in Egypt uh, obviously wouldn't have the opportunity to celebrate these holidays. If all of this isn't making sense as we read through the passage, I think you'll get what I'm talking about. But let's begin in chapter or chapter 13, verse one. 
And like I've been doing, I'm just going to walk through verse by verse, make some comments here and there, then we'll talk about how it applies to our lives. A lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about today, we've already talked about at length in previous Bible talks, so I don't think uh, I'll I'll discuss them thoroughly. Uh, So this might be a briefer Bible talk than some, and that's okay. I mean, it's okay to study the Bible for two or three hours at a time. It's also beneficial to study the Bible for 20, 30 minutes at a time. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of like eating. Is it appropriate to eat a great big meal, you know, meatloaf and mashed potatoes? Sure, but other times it's okay to just uh, grab like a protein bar or something like that. Both are nutritious, both can be helpful, and sometimes a briefer time in God's Word uh, is, is helpful as well. Let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, pause there. Obviously, connecting this to the previous plague, the firstborn uh, that weren't covered by the blood were killed. Firstborn of Pharaoh, firstborn of the Jews. Uh, What that meant is that the firstborn stood in a rather unique position. Uh, They had been... uh, saved by blood. Now here, those who are first born were to be uniquely dedicated to the Lord, and and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But before we do, I want you to think through how this applies to us today. Are are we today in the church age to take our firstborn child and have some sort of special ceremony where we devote him to the Lord? And, you know, let's say we had four kids, you know, kid two, three, and four, they, they can just sort of like go their own way and do their own thing. No, that's a massive misunderstanding of what's going on here. Instead, what we have here is a type of Jesus and then a type of what all believers enjoy by virtue of their union with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, again, think through this. The firstborn, especially set apart and consecrated to God for a special mission. Think about the life of Jesus. He was actually the firstborn of the Virgin Mary. Uh, you know, we think that Jesus, or we think that Joseph and Mary, after Jesus was born, had natural, you know, biological children. Uh, but regardless, Jesus was the firstborn, and because of that, he was uniquely consecrated to God. Now, in Jesus' uh, ministry, that that was a unique ministry like nobody else has ever had in the history of the world or ever will have. Uh, you know, if you think about Bible history, there have been many great prophets who have spoke for God, many great priests who uh, you know perform sacrifices and whatnot. There were many great kings, King David and so forth, but nobody comes even remotely close to Jesus and his mission uh, to be the savior of the world, to give up his life as a ransom for many, to purchase people from God for God by his blood from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Uh, nobody had a mission like that, like Jesus, and never nobody ever will. I mean, Throughout church history, there have been some great preachers, great pastors and whatnot uh, that we honor, but they they don't hold a candle to Jesus, the God-man, and the great work that he did for us and our redemption. And you see that sort of prefigured here. Jesus had a special mission set apart uh, from, you know, from his, actually from eternity past, uh, but then from the very point he's conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb. Uh, And you'll remember one of the earliest Accounts in the Gospels, we have uh, Joseph and Mary, they take the baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. They're actually fulfilling the commands given here to dedicate the firstborn to the Lord. But again, Jesus' mission is so much greater than any mission you or I could have. Um, and I think that's sort of typified here. Now, how does this apply to us? 
We who believe are united to Jesus, the firstborn. You know, Colossians talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, and by that, that's not really talking primarily about his birth order. Uh, it's talking about his exalted state. He's, he is the like prince of all creation. Uh, the term firstborn, just as a quick aside, not only meant like first in order, but it also meant first in priority. Uh, typically, the firstborn son would become the prince who would then become the king. And there are occasions where children died, but the firstborn was passed on to the second or even the third born. So he was called the firstborn, even though he wasn't you know, technically firstborn in the sense of birth order. Uh, you could think of King David. David was the youngest son of Jesse, but one of the Psalms describes him as the firstborn. What in the world does that mean? Again, it's not so much talking about chronology, it's talking about his exalted state as uh, prince of Israel. So also when we think of Jesus as the firstborn, it's not primarily firstborn in the sense that he's the first created thing or something like that. We don't think he was created at all. We think he's never had a beginning. Obviously, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but in his deity, he never had a beginning. But he's the firstborn over all creation in that he's the prince, the Messiah, the king of all creation. Now, when we trust in him, we're united to him and we're united to all of his benefits. God looks at, at us as if we had lived Jesus' life. If all of this is brand new, uh, please sometime look into the idea of being in Christ. Maybe even do a like a concordance search for those phrases, in Christ and what that means. Uh, Jesus lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we deserve, deserve to die. We are raised in him. We're crucified with him. We're united to him in all of his benefits. What that means is that we're united to Jesus in his firstborn state. Uh, not in the sense that we become deity or anything like that, but in the sense that we become beloved children of God. And more than that, it's actually sons of God. I know that when you get to the New Testament, sometimes people get bothered when it talks about believers being sons of God. And they're like, uh, what about the ladies? Aren't they daughters of God? Well, in a sense, yes, they are. But at the same time, if you go back to ancient culture, sons had a position of honor that daughters didn't have. Uh, you know, again, you don't need to be a master of uh, Ancient, ancient archaeology and whatnot to know a little bit about this. The firstborn son was exalted more than the firstborn daughter. Now, when we are united to Jesus, we all, men and women, become firstborn sons. We become joint heirs with Jesus, uh, heirs of all creation one day. One day we will rule over this creation, rule over angels, as first I think it's First Corinthians talks about. But that's by virtue of our union with Jesus and all of his benefits. And all of this is sort of typified here in the consecration of the firstborn. Now, in thinking about the unique mission that Jesus had, our mission is substantially different. Uh, obviously, there are some similarities. We're to love our neighbor, love God, and that sort of thing. But obviously, we are not to lay down our lives as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We're not to uh, you know, do the exact same sorts of things that Jesus did. But, like... Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, there are nonetheless good works, unique good works that only you can do uh, that God has prepared for you from before the creation of the world. And part of growing as a Christian is embracing that, figuring out what those good works are, and then doing them. Because this, again, is part of what it means to be consecrated, set apart as a firstborn child of God. Now, I recognize that you know if you're newer to the Bible, a lot of this is probably not making complete sense. But I hope you're getting some of these bits that this Jewish ceremony, the consecration of the firstborn, typified Jesus. Uh, this Jewish ceremony of the consecration of the firstborn, we, uh, in a way, all believers, even if you were the, like, you know, let's say you had 14 brothers and sisters, even if you're number 14, uh, by virtue of union with Jesus, you are in that 
unique consecrated state as a firstborn child of God with all the rights and the privileges uh, that pertain to that. And along with that comes a mission uh, to love your neighbor, to do what you can to advance the Great Commission, to do what you can to disciple other believers. Um, that's part of what it means. And, and when you get the exalted status that we have as Christians, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of people think of the Christian life as uh, we're forgiven of our sins. Uh, that is minimalization to the point of insult. Of course we're forgiven of our sins, but it's so much more than that. United to Jesus and all of his benefits, adopted as sons of God. Uh, Given this unique mission, we're doing these good works that God has prepared from before the foundation of the world for us to do. It's such an exalted high state. And when you get that, that will bring you joy. It'll bring your life dignity. Even if you're doing something as, you know, I don't know, let's imagine a really unpleasant job where like all day you're putting the caps on salt shakers or something like that. Imagine doing that for 40 years, just putting the caps on, you know, chances are that, you know, they have machines that do that nowadays. But let's say that that was your job. Eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, putting caps on salt shakers. If you get your exalted status as a saint, as a child of God, uh, a son of God, as uh, a one-day ruler of all creation, uh, you can put caps on salt shakers with dignity and gravitas because, again, you understand that you're doing something that's blessing creation. Uh, the, The difference between the Christian worldview on these matters and the current secular worldview on this matters, they could not be more different. I actually think this is a large part of the reason why suicide rates and depression rates and despair rates are so skyrocketing. You know, if there is no God, we have no purpose, we have no meaning, we have no mission. Uh, we're just sort of like existing until we die. If that's your worldview, why wouldn't you be depressed? But if you see yourself as first created in God's image, but second consecrated because of your union with Jesus and having this incredible mission and and unique status and you're a saint and you're blessed with every spiritual blessing, um, you know, that can be the foundation for a lot of rich joy that enables me to love my neighbor. Now, are we going to have our dark, difficult days? Of course. Are we going to go through seasons where things are kind of tough? Of course. But the difference between the Christian worldview on this and the secular worldview on this could not be more different. And I do think that this is part of the key to kind of helping resolve the suicide and despair problem. That, that's really not going to be resolved primarily through drugs and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, it's primarily going to be through getting who we are as creatures made in God's image and then as those redeemed by Jesus' blood. Uh, think more on these things, and I think it can transform your life. And, and pray to that end that God would change your entire worldview and way of thinking because of our status in Jesus. Anyway, let's pick up in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 16, again, pausing from time to time to make some comments. So many of these themes we've talked about already, so I'll try to only make comments when it's something unique or different. But here we go, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Strong hand is kind of, a, in a way, an understatement. I mean, think of all that the Lord did to Egypt over the last you know, two years. We think the plagues could have taken up to two years. You know, frogs and blood and darkness and, and, and lice and all this stuff, and then killing the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Uh, you know, incredible devastation. Yeah, it, it, it was a strong arm. Verse 4, oh, pardon me, I skipped this phrase. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Uh, we talked about that before, but for seven days they weren't to eat unleavened bread. And again, Jews today, they still celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. The first day is Passover, which uh, always comes in the spring. It actually connects to Easter, if, you're, if you understand how that works and whatnot. Um, but for seven days after that, they were to eat no leavened bread. They were to only eat matzah. And again, your faithful Jews will do that to this day. Verse 4, 
Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. A couple of quick things. I'm sure you've come across those uh, those people groups before, uh, Hittites, Gergeshites, Canaanites, and so forth. If you go back to the, to the book of Genesis, God specifically promised to Abraham, eventually you're going to go into this land and you're going to uh, dispossess these individuals and take their land. Now that brings up some interesting questions about the entire role of like, you know, dispossessing different people groups. For the sake of time, we won't talk about that, but clearly this was something that uh, God wanted Israel to do and blessed Israel for doing. But keep in mind, he's fulfilling a promise made uh, 400 and some years earlier. I remind you one more time, God is uh, not always on our timetable. He's usually not on our timetable. He, he keeps promises quite slowly, um, and part of growing as a Christian is learning to wait patiently on the Lord and, and recognize Lord, your timing is better than mine, your timing is wiser than mine, and even if, if, if you need to take thousands of years to fulfill your promises, you're going to still fulfill your promises and be faithful. Anyway, um, and you shall keep this service in this month. Something interesting, they never actually made it to the promised land until 40 years after this. You know, if you're familiar at all with the storyline of the Bible, they leave Egypt, but then they wander around the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation that didn't believe dies off. So these commandments about these festivals, they're not going to keep some of them for many, many, many years. Um, and if I remember correctly, they don't actually keep the Passover until Joshua brings them into the land in the book of Joshua. So uh, sadly, Israel did not obey God very well. I mean, certainly there were some good years under David and Solomon and so forth, but for long periods of time, they, they, they left you know, big, obvious commands neglected, and that, that was a very unfortunate thing. Verse 6, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son that on this day... Uh, pardon me, where, I skipped something, didn't I? You shall tell your son that on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Pause there. Uh, as you can see, again, the entire thought here is that God is giving to Israel a mechanism for discipling the next generation. This is going to come up all over the Old Testament and really all over the entire Bible. Uh, God gives to this generation uh, festivals and ceremonies and, and traditions so that they can disciple the next generation. As your kids grow up, they're going to ask you, what's, what's this all about? What's that all about? What's, what's up with this Exodus thing? And what's up with this Passover thing? And what's up? Why do we only eat unleavened bread? And these are opportunities for you to disciple the next generation. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't belabor this. I've talked about this many times before, but the entire Bible is incredibly concerned with what would be called multi-generational discipleship. Multi-generational discipleship. At the end of the day, it's not the youth pastor's job, it's not the Sunday school teacher's job uh, to tell your kids about Jesus and disciple them in the faith. It's your job, mom and dad, and especially dad, uh, to talk to them about the Lord, to share the gospel with them, to teach them the Bible. And that's true even if you don't feel gifted to teach at all. I mean, you can still just read the Bible and kind of talk about it. Even if you don't feel like an eloquent speaker, that's okay. You can still read the Bible, talk about it, learn how to pray. Uh, and as you do this with your kids, realize you'll be growing yourself. I do think that there's a beautiful sort of symbiotic relationship here, that as 
parents and especially fathers take their duties to disciple their kids seriously, they themselves grow in discipleship themselves because it's going to force them to learn how to pray, learn how to study the Bible, that sort of thing. So, you know, you see the wisdom of God in everything. So thinking about church age, uh, are there ceremonies and customs and whatnot embedded in New Testament Christianity that we can use for teaching the next generation? Uh, of course, you know, the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying give the Lord's Supper to your five-year-old, but when your five-year-old asks you, what's up with these like little cups of grape juice and little pieces of bread? It's an opportunity to explain to them what Jesus has done and how he has come to be the Savior of the world. Same thing with baptism. Hopefully from time to time your church observes baptism and kids can ask, you know, what's up with this? Why are they dunking people in water? Uh, opportunity, again, to explain to your kids uh, what the faith is all about. And, and there are these sorts of opportunities all throughout the life of the church. I mean, why do we have church pitch-in dinners? And, and why is it that church, you know, why is it, here's, here's something to think about, why is it that really church needs to be a gathering of God's people and watching a Christian TV show is not church? Uh, you know, you can explain these things to your kids. So there are these opportunities if you have your eyes open, uh, that are all over the place to disciple the next generation. In addition to that, I would encourage you to implement some intentionality. Uh, you know, have family Bible reading at night. Pray with your kids before they go to bed. You probably won't be able to do it seven days a week, but as many as possible is great. You know, four days, five days a week. Over the years, that will communicate deeply to your kids. Uh, God is important. Jesus is important. The Bible, prayer, these things are vital. Uh, so take discipling the next generation deadly seriously. The entire Bible does. And just so you don't think that this is some sort of Old Testament thing that's like a type of Jesus, uh, what does Ephesians 6 say? Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. And I, I find it fascinating that it does not say parents, but what does it say? It says fathers. Uh, now, are mothers vital? Of course. Can mothers be incredibly influential? Yes. I mean, check out the example of Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy and how his mother and grandmother discipled him. And yet at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the captain of the spiritual ship in the family is the father. And if he is failing to do this, uh, he's failing in one of his most fundamental responsibilities. I mean, you can be a hardworking dad who brings home the bacon and makes sure your kids have you know a nice house and nice cars and you know everybody's got a cell phone and everybody's got you know a video game system but if you're failing to disciple the next generation you are failing as a father regardless of what you're doing in these other areas of life let me pick up verse 10 you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, again, that wouldn't happen for, for 40 years after this, you shall set apart to the Lord all that, the first, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. It's kind of a... Kind of a you know, especially if we love animals, it's kind of a disturbing thought that if I can't redeem my donkey, I got to snap its neck. Um, but again, God, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about in some ways, God doesn't value animals as much as modern culture does. Now, does God want us to be kind to animals? Yes. If we've got you know, a cat or a dog, does he want us to take good care of it? Yes. Uh, but animals are not in the same category as people. Um, and you know, there are, you just think about the entire temple sacrificial system. There's, there's animals dying every single day, and there's blood flowing everywhere. Uh, I don't think that would be tolerated in our culture today. You know, If I said I wanted to set up Old Testament Judaism and start sacrificing animals all over the place, uh, there are, I, you know, I tend to think there'd be like mob violence or something to oppose that. Uh, in some ways, we too, uh, too value 
animals. And again, be kind to your animals. That you know, you don't go around just you know torturing them. That that's not at all what I'm saying. But at the same time, animals are not made in the image of God. It's even after Adam had named all these animals, it was still not good for Adam to be alone, and he needed another human. He didn't need a puppy. Um, and again, be careful of over-exalting animals. I, I can't remember who it was. I heard it recently, but we tend to treat animals like people and people like animals in this generation. Uh, you know, sparing a little, you know, let's say you discovered somebody was killing puppies, people would freak out to no end. But when we hear about, say, abortion and killing people, we're like, yeah, you know, who, who am I to judge? Uh, we, we've got to reverse all of this and elevate our view of humans as unique creatures made in the image of God and in some ways diminish our view of animals. They're, they're, they're not. You were made for other people, not for another dog or something like that. Anyway, um, verse 14. And when the time comes... And your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Again, there's that allusion to teaching the next generation. And I, I think I've mentioned this before in these Bible talks. I think that God made kids inquisitive on purpose so that we would fill in their worldview with Bible truth. You know, if you've ever had kids, they ask questions constantly. And it can be easy to get annoyed by that. Just be like, okay, stop asking so, much que- so many questions. I'd encourage you parents to fight that. Instead, take that as an opportunity to fill in their worldview world with biblical truth. Um, you know, I remember very distinctly one of my kids, I think he was about five years old, he asked me, Daddy, why is it that uh, I look around and I see men wearing more clothing than women wear? Uh, why is that? I could have said, oh, don't worry about that, Junior, you know, you know you'll, you'll figure that out one day. Uh, but instead, by the grace of God, I took that as an opportunity to talk about the differences between men and women and how, uh, you know, dynamics in our world result in that. Um, but again, don't get annoyed by kids' inquisitiveness. Take that as an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord. Uh, you'll notice that that phrase, with a strong hand, the Lord brought us out, comes up three times in this passage. Um, when I said earlier that this is like an understatement, I, w- I shouldn't have said it that way. I'm not mocking this. I mean, God, every word of God is perfect and pure, and God chose this phrase on pur- pur- purpose. Um, but it is, you know, it's, 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 like a, it's like a giant smashing fist. It's not just, you know, a strong arm like your Mr. Clean or something like that. Anyway, he brought us out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, Verse 15, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, and he was stubborn, very stubborn, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborns of my son I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, one last quick comment. I can see I've gone a lot longer than I thought I would. Uh, But in verse uh, 16, it talks about this shall be a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. Uh, If you're familiar with Judaism, they have these things called phylacteries. Um, I think they're called tephilim in Hebrew or Aramaic. I can't remember. Um, But what they are, they're these little boxes that have scripture verses in them rolled up real tight, and they actually like pin them to their forehead and then put them on their, I think it's their left hand, uh, near near their heart. Um, and, And they think that that's fulfilling this verse. Now, just to give you the quick background, um, 
that does seem to be a very ancient tradition because Jesus himself talks about this in the New Testament. Uh, he actually condemns the Pharisees for their doing this in a mindless, uh, just dead ritualistic way. You know, you can tie the verse on your forehead and you can tie it on your arm, but if you don't really have faith and you, know, you don't really know what you're doing and you're just going through a ritual, that means nothing. So whether or not the Lord meant this literally or not, at the end of the day, the important thing is the heart of the matter, not the not necessarily the letter of the law here, but the spirit of the law. God wants his words to permeate you, permeate your mind, permeate your actions, to fill your head, your hands, your heart. Um, and you can uh, have it you know, tied to your arm and tied to your forehead, but your heart is still far from the Lord. Now, don't think that that idea died with the ancient Pharisees. I mean, we can do the very same things ourselves. Go through the rituals while our heart is far from the Lord. You know, we can have the best Bible that money can offer, you know, with the gold gilled edges and, you know, uh, most expensive leather man, you know, some sort of weird uh, water buffalo from Africa. Uh, you know, we can come to church every single Sunday, give our, you know, tithe in the offering plate. Uh, but if in our hearts we don't really know the Lord, don't love the Lord, don't really have any interest in knowing him, knowing, uh, pleasing him, um, that is as offensive in God's nostrils as the dead ritualism of the Old Testament was. Uh, so check your heart in all of this. I mean, we don't tie Bible verses to our bodies anymore, uh, but at the same time, the word of the Lord should be written on our hearts, written on our minds. Uh, we should be memorizing it, studying it, but as we do that, examining our lives to, to make sure that we actually have personal faith in Jesus and in the promises of God. I suppose that's enough for today. How could we pray this back to God? Uh, a few quick things. I mean, first, this passage again does prompt me to pray for the salvation of the Jews. Um, I do, as I read the Bible, they still have a special role to play in the future in God's plan. We can talk about that more someday. Um, but with that comes the eventual salvation of all Israel. So let's pray that God opens the eyes of the Jews that they would embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Additionally, let's pray that God helps us uh, to disciple the next generation. Uh, help us, Lord, to be faithful in teaching our kids and our grandkids about what the Lord has done. And let's uh, pray that we don't get irritated by their constant questions, but use that to uh, explain to them what God has done and who God is. Uh, and let's thank God for our union with Jesus and all of his benefits. He is the unique, only begotten Son of God. But when we trust in him, we become beneficiaries of all that he has accomplished. Uh, his riches become our riches. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His title to heaven becomes our title to heaven. Incredible riches that come to all those who trust in him. Uh, let's thank God for that together. Let's pray and we'll be done. Oh Lord God, thank you so much for giving us a Savior, Jesus. He is the only begotten Son of God. Uh, he is the unique, uh, consecrated Son of God, the firstborn of all creation. And we praise you that by trusting in Him, we're united to Him and all of His benefits. Please, Lord, increase our appreciation of that. Illuminate our minds so we might understand better what that means. And uh, out of that, motivate us to love and good works. Lord, we do pray for the salvation of all Israel. We pray that you would raise up more missionaries to go to the Jews. We pray that you would open their eyes, that they would embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And we do pray, Lord, that we might see in our lifetime millions of Jews come to know the Lord Jesus. We uh, do pray again for, please, peace in Israel right now, and that the bloodshed and, and war connected to this current war would be minimal. Father, we uh, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word and for how incredibly relevant it is. What we're reading here is nearly 3,500 years old, but it speaks to us today with such a freshness and an applicability. Thank you for that. Lord, bless now the remainder of our day. Give us grace to love those we interact with and give us opportunities to commend Jesus to others. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.